Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up on this edition of The Intersection, the first three guests spoke with me recently concerning the inauguration of President Donald Trump. First up, Richard Land of Southern Evangelical Seminary, on the day prior to the president being sworn in, discussed matters with me of significance surrounding the president's election. Also, David Christensen of the Family Research Council visited with me the day of the event to discuss his observations about the inauguration and important policy considerations. Plus, Dan Celia of Financial Issues Stewardship Ministries shared some insight regarding how the Affordable Care Act might be affected by the administration's new policies. And on this edition of The Intersection, I devoted a significant amount of airtime recently on the Meeting House to the Sanctity of Human Life. I spoke with Brandy Swindell, whose organization Stanton Healthcare was a sponsor of the Women's March on Washington, but was disallowed once it became known that it was a pro-life entity. And David Altrogi joined me to talk about the content of a film in which he was involved in making about the noted abortionist Kermit Gosnell. Finally, you'll hear from actor D.B. Sweeney, who is featured in a new movie about a down-and-out former child star who ran into legal trouble and chose to do his required community service in a church. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Richard Land is president of Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's a member of President Trump's Evangelical Advisory Board, which was formed during the general election campaign, whose work will continue. In our conversation, he discussed a variety of issues surrounding the new Trump presidency. Here now is Richard Land. The advisory board came into being after the nomination was secure. Um, Frankly, Mr. Trump was my last choice among the Republican nominees, Republican people that were candidates. Um, He was 17th among 17s. Sometimes I've said he was 18th among 17. Um, But... Once he secured the nomination, he approached me and others, and they said, you know, um, would you be willing to serve on a non-endorsing evangelical advisory board to give uh, guidance and counsel to the nominee and to answer questions and seek to give him um, a synopsis of evangelical concerns and evangelical um, hopes and dreams for the future? And I said, well, sure. I mean, how can I turn that down? Um, If Hillary had asked the same question, I would have done the same for her. Uh, But uh, she didn't, and I can't imagine that she would. Um, And we had weekly phone calls. We had a couple of meetings. We had weekly phone calls. And we had a chance to give, you know, lots of input um, and respond to lots of questions. Uh, Very first thing I said once I signed on was I said, well, if you're looking for ways to encourage evangelicals to vote for you, the very first thing you can do is pick Mike Pence as your uh, vice president because there's no one who has more um, uh, sterling reputation among evangelicals than Mike Pence. And I'm not, I'm not the only one who gave him that suggestion, but it was my first piece of uh, advice. My second piece of advice was that he needed to <clears throat> establish his bona fides with conservatives by giving a list of Supreme Court uh, potential nominees, and he was going to put someone on there like Scalia, and that he was going to appoint to the federal bench strict constructionists, original intent jurists, who were not going to try to reinterpret the Constitution and, and try to rule America from the bench. And he has done that. I mean, you know, he, 
he has um, uh, he's not always taken my advice. Um, uh, I can't imagine that he would, but um, I, I, they certainly have listened. Um, they have been very solicitous since the election um, of getting recommendations of, and resumes of people that um, could serve in the Trump administration would be um, would represent evangelicals and conservative Christianity well. Um, more solicitous than any administration I've dealt with, and I've dealt with every administration from Reagan onward. And uh, so, you know, it's it's been it's been interesting. Um, and you know, we've not pulled any punches. I mean, I just give you one example. Um, the very first phone conversation we had with him, he was telling us that he was going to have our back, that he was going to defend religious freedom, and he thought that the um, the discrimination against Christians was appalling. And um, he um, he said, now, yeah, I'm going to get rid of that Johnson Amendment. He said, now, probably the only way I'm going to get to heaven is to get rid of that Johnson Amendment. Well, immediately, one of the people on the call beat the rest of us to unmuting his <laughs> mute and said, no, Mr. Trump, the only way you're going to get to heaven is by trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and his sacrifice on the cross for your sins. And Mr. Trump's response was, thank you for reminding me which told me a lot. I mean, I got to tell you, <clears throat> I can only think of two people that are, that are at that level of political life that would have responded as, as humbly as that. And that's George W. and Ronald Reagan. What are you seeing as far as the, the cabinet appointments, as well as other activities here during this transition period that could be encouraging <clears throat> to well, per- Christians? Personnel is policy. And, um, I have been, like many evangelicals and conservative Christians, I've been pinching myself uh, to, to make sure I'm not dreaming as I as I watch these nominees come forth. Most of them are rock-solid conservatives. Many of them are Christians. Um, you know, Tom Price, you know, HHS, is a Southern Baptist. Um, uh, Sonny Perdue, who was just named former governor of of Georgia is a, a very strong Southern Baptist layman. Um, Scott Pruitt, who is um, going to be the EPA guy, um, is a strong Southern Baptist layman, Attorney General of Oklahoma, and uh, a trustee at Southern Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. So those are just just four. I mean, there are others. I mean, it, it is. An, um, this is shaping up as the most conservative administration since uh, Calvin Coolidge. Richard Land here on the intersection. The seminary's website is ses.edu. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast. Visiting with me recently on the Meeting House program was David Christensen, Vice President for Government Affairs for the Family Research Council. In our overall conversation, he discussed some of the aspects of President Trump's inaugural speech and some of the legislative priorities of FRC during the next administration. Here now is David Christensen. America was founded on, on the fundamentally, in part, to say that uh, people of faith should be free from government tyranny. And it's so many, why so many people left uh, England and left Europe uh, to find freedom here. It wasn't just economic freedom, it was, it was religious freedom. It was the ability to live and serve um, God in accordance to the way uh, that you believe he's called you. And so, you know, that those are some of the fundamental principles of, of America, and I think rebuilding that um, as opposed to trying to adopt every other nation's and every other ideology from other nations, um, kind of a rest- restoration of this uh, fundamental idea of freedom and uh, that the, the average American is equal to anybody, no matter how powerful they are. 
I think those are some real key sort of American first uh, principles. Um, I, it's interesting that uh, President um, Trump, uh, you're right, we have to get used to that, right. um, referenced the Bible in saying that, uh, you know, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity, and we must speak our minds openly and debate. I'm reading now, he says, our disagreements honestly, but always purpose solidarity, and it talks about American unity and whatnot. Um, so, you know, there was some sort of uh, subtle uh, references to some the, the Bible and, and um, uh, a little bit there of faith, and clearly the fact that um, Franklin Graham and, and um, Archbishop Dolan and several other uh, pastors uh, preached, or not preached, but, get, you know, prayed, um, I think really more than in, that I can remember any um, prior inauguration event, uh, you know, reflected the importance of faith and, and religion and, and public life. This has the potential to be a, a huge shift in the way that that we approach the religious freedom issue, it seems. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you look at President Obama um, and, and what uh, he and the, the Democrat-controlled Congress did with the passage of Obamacare with subsidies for abortion, mandates on insurance, including mandating that every employer uh, and every individual health insurance plan in the country has to pay for free contraceptives and abortifacient-related drugs. And uh, that started in 2011. And uh, obviously the Hobby Lobby um, and Conestoga Wood Incorporated uh, victory at the Supreme Court objecting to that mandate uh, was a great victory. But what a lot of Americans forget is that uh, they created an accounting gimmick supposedly protecting the religious freedom of nonprofits. And so the other cases that went up to the Supreme Court in the wake of the Hobby Lobby ruling was actually the Little Sisters of the Poor, Wheaton College, and a number of um, Christian universities where the Little Sisters of the Poor were being threatened um, uh, by Obama and this law to provide drugs and devices that they oppose on moral and religious grounds, um, as if why would uh, a group of nuns that help take care of the poor have to pay for those or face fines upwards of $100 per day per employee. I mean, you're talking about for 100 employees, you're talking about millions of dollars. So, you know, this is this was not new, and I think that shifted with the change of the Obergefell ruling where the court redefined marriage for the entire country. And suddenly you started to see instances where uh, chaplains and people in the military were being um, threatened to be court-martialed because of they, their faith. You started to see states going after uh, bakers, uh, Baronel Stutzman, um, who, uh, you know, did, refused to participate in a um, same-sex marriage ceremony, despite the fact she was friends with this gay uh, couple. And suddenly she's facing, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in legal fees and losing in court up in Washington state. And we've seen this grow across the country. And, you know, the one good news is I, I would say that, uh, you know, Tony Perkins, my boss, was at the was a delegate at the um, GOP convention platform. And the the expression of the importance of religious freedom beyond the walls of the church or beyond the synagogue, beyond your place of worship to your public life, whether it's in your business, who you associate with, um, was very strong in the platform. We actually did polling right after the election on whether, you know, for Trump supporters, how many, how much the platform on abortion and religious freedom resonated with them. And about 59% said it made a difference in the 
how they voted. David Christensen here on The Intersection. The Family Research Council website is frc.org. Well, Dan Celia joined me recently. He is CEO of Financial Issues Stewardship Ministries and offered some perspective on the possible economic direction of the U.S. during the Trump administration. He also discussed the future of Obamacare and the potential results of action taken on the Affordable Care Act in the first months of the administration. Here now, from that conversation, is Dan Celia. The people that are now insured under Obamacare, the 20 million people, they say are going to lose their insurance. 18 million of them are on Medicaid. Medicaid's not going away. Hmm. We had Medicaid before Obamacare, and we're going to have it after Obamacare. So, you know, 18 million of those people are going to stay on Medicaid. Now, the difference is it's going to be funded by the government through block grants to the states. So the states, before Obamacare, the states always ran Medicaid. It was always a state-run program. Now, they had to meet certain mandates of the federal government to get the money, but it was always run by the states, and then the states might have had some of their own rules. So for, from that perspective, he's sending all – well, we haven't seen the actual replacement bill yet, but we believe that all of that is going to go back to the states so those people can still be insured. The part that is coming out, the mandate, even with that so-called funding to make it, as the government framed it, to make it reasonable so that we can afford all the other things that we're going to do, never really happened. It didn't, it didn't work because the 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 uh well it might have worked initially but once they realized it wasn't going to work insurance companies are dro- were dropping out of the exchanges in record numbers to the point where we've had hundreds and hundreds of counties throughout the country that only had one insurance company that was handling those things so it didn't work the way they thought it was going to work um number 1 the way that they started saving money when President Obama said we have spent less money on health care than we have ever spent. It wasn't because this was a system that was humming along, working great. It was because the government wasn't allowing so much more, and they reduced what they were paying to hospitals and doctors in dramatic fashion in order to pay for this. So the health care was, you know, the quality of that health care was being reduced, particularly to Medicaid and and Medicare patients. So the whole system was so flawed in that regard and then the and then the administration taking credit for these 20 million people when 18 million were on medicaid so mm-hmm. the medicaid's not going to go away i think medicaid's going to get better but more importantly the goal of this administration the trump administration is to bring quality of health care back to the doctors hospitals private insurers 
and to privatize, like it's always been, the greatest health care system in the world has to always been the United States of America. Why? Because it is health care that has been uh, uh, mandated and worked with by the insurance companies, yes, and the doctors, so that people had control over their health care system, not controlled by government. So that's why it's always been so good. So we, you know, this is not what the propaganda would say it is. We will have those 20. Nobody is going to be put on the street. Nobody's going to be put on the street. Now, maybe, maybe those people that are now under this mandate will be under a situation where pre-existing conditions have to be covered, but we are giving you $2,500 a year to pay for that insurance, and that's how you're going to pay for it, and the $2,500 is going to be enough to pay for that because we're going to make sure of that through the private sector. Um, so it's just going to be a very different system. I don't think anything is going to be lost other than the government control on the quality of health care that we get. Dan Celia here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website financialissues.org. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to, download, or share full conversations with recent guests here on The Intersection Podcast. And you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Continuing now with this edition of the Intersection Podcast, from Washington, D.C., Brandy Swindell, founder of Stanton Healthcare and the Stanton Policy Center, discussed her organization's participation in the Women's March on Washington and how her organization, based in Idaho, was disallowed as a march sponsor. Here now is Brandy Swindell. We originally heard about uh, the Women's March on Washington back in November after the election when uh, they first decided to do this march. And we felt very strongly that if it was a true women's march, that we wanted to have a presence and be able to uh, represent the pro-life feminist voice. And so it was our intention to be involved in what was originally thought would perhaps be an inclusive march. I have to tell you, I've been in this work quite some time, and I had a hunch that uh, Planned Parenthood and the abortion lobby was actually uh, organizers of the march. But we thought, you know what, let's go ahead and apply, see if we can become sponsors. There were hundreds and hundreds of partners uh, in the Women's March on Washington. They were accepting everybody. And sure enough, we submitted our application, and we got accepted and approved to be a partner at the Women's March. And we thought, wow, this is pretty amazing. We can have a strong showing to represent that there are not just millions of pro-life women, but tens of millions. And we can participate in this, in this march, uh, being a vibrant voice for uh, children in the womb, 
showing uh, that uh, we believe in human rights in the womb and that we need to bring an end to the violence of abortion and that abortion is not good for women. But let me tell you, we got accepted, and I think it was within 24, 40 hours, 48 hours, excuse me, within 24 to 48 hours, we were ousted, and they told us that we could not be partners uh, of, of the march. And so we felt very strongly, myself and uh, other national leaders and uh, our leadership team at Stanton, that we were not going to take our marching orders from the abortion industry, and we were not going to be under the thumb of Planned Parenthood, and that we were still going to march holding our pro-life signs. And so that's what we did, and it was pretty amazing. Mm. Well, let's talk about that with respect to the March for Women in Washington. We've heard some news coverage as far as pro-life people that have been involved from the, the Stanton team and some of those aligned with you what were their experiences this past Saturday? Sure. Well, so we had members of the Stanton team uh, marching in uh, Idaho, which is where I'm from, uh, in Boise at the Idaho State Capitol. And so we had a crew there, our justice crew, we called it. And then in Washington, D.C., we had um, members of our National Advisory Board. We had Catherine Glenn Foster. We had Kate Bryan, um, some amazing women holding their pro-life signs. I have to say um, our experience was a little more mellow in, in Boise during the march. But you know what? We certainly got some jeers, um, some dirty looks. We had uh, a group of Planned Parenthood supporters that started chant- circling around us and chanting Planned Parenthood as loud as they could. And we just smiled and held our signs high and were vibrant and hopeful and representatives of, of the truth. And, the, and the, the reality is that you can be pro-woman and you can be pro-life and that our story matters. And, uh, and what was also cool, though, at, at the March uh, for Women is that we did have several women that came up to us and said, uh, thank you for being here. I, I, I agree with you. I, I'm a pro-woman, pro-life person as well. I'm a pro-life feminist, some of them would say. And so there's, we, we're, we're not a tiny fraction of pro-life women. Like I said earlier, we represent tens of millions of pro-life women. And so, and in Washington, D.C., you know, things got a little more intense. We know that there were um, members of, of pro, pro-life uh, groups and stamp groups that had their signs taken and ripped and torn up, people who got angry and were yelling. Uh, uh, so it, it really was, this, here's what we, our point was that we wanted to show, is that this march in Washington was really about being uh pro-choice, pro-abortion, and anti-Trump. And for them to use the word woman, that this was a woman's march in order to push forward their political agenda was wrong. It wasn't truly an inclusive women's march. It was a pro-abortion, anti-Trump march. And we exposed that. That's really what it was. Brandy Swindell here on The Intersection. Learn more about Stanton at thestantonproject.org. The Intersection continues now with David Altrogi, director and writer for a film called 3801 Lancaster, exploring the actions and court case of noted abortionist Kermit Gosnell, including interviews with Gosnell. From a recent conversation in which he discussed different aspects of the film and its material, this is David Altrogi now. What was so um, interesting about this case was... um, the, the Philadelphia District Attorney did such an incredible job of of bringing together a huge uh, disparate amount of information and condensing it into the grand jury report, um, which 
our film is, is heavily based on. In fact, you know, if you, when your listeners get to watch the film, uh, and they can watch it on Amazon Prime or iTunes or Google Play or YouTube, it's on all the sort of online streaming platforms, they'll see that large portions of the film are just kind of quotations of the grand juror report. And I think what the, the elements that really made us want to make this film were, first of all, um, what Gosnell was accused of and then later convicted of, killing babies who were born alive. Um, you know, women would come into his clinic for abortions, um, and he was known as, as one of the few doctors who would do abortions up until 24 weeks and past 24 weeks. Um, and he had a, a procedure that he called, uh, according to the grand jury report, snipping, where he would induce labor. Um, oftentimes a live baby would be born, and then he would kill that baby outside of the womb. Um, so there was that aspect that was just like, how – what, how did this happen? And then, and then there were um, the women who went to him for help, who uh, two of them, according to the grand jury report, were killed. And dozens of others were left either um, unable to conceive or having um, sexually transmitted diseases due to um, his unsanitary, unsafe practices in his clinic. Um, and then I think the third thing that, that really just said you know, this is a this is a film that that we need to make. Was, you know, according to the grand jury report, Gosnell could have been stopped decades ago, um, but the Pennsylvania Department of Health and Pennsylvania Department of State, two agencies really tasked with protecting the citizens of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, chose not to inspect his clinic, not to respond to report after report of wrongdoing at his clinic um, for political reasons. Um, because it was um, abortion was too too much of a hot topic politically that it was they decided and this is according to the grand jury report written by written by um, Democrats written by people who who are pro-choice um, their findings found that they chose not to act because it was it was they didn't want to touch abortion. You had the opportunity to talk to Gosnell from what I understand it at length. What did you learn? Yeah, that, yeah. Um, you know, the film. Uh, one of the things that's, that's really unique about our film is it's the only, um, the only recorded, you know, audio recording interviews with Dr. Gosnell since his trial. There was one. There was one interview in 2010 when the case first broke on Philadelphia News, and since then there have been no recorded interviews published. Um, so our film, he, we were the first who were really able to get him on on tape, defending his actions. Um, and it took us, it took us a year of getting to know him, um, going and visiting him in prison. Um, you know, really kind of how we how we presented to him was we said, listen, we want to give you the opportunity to share your side of the story, um, and what your viewers. Uh, or listeners were here here in the film when they watch it is um, a man who fully believes that he's innocent. They'll hear a man who is very intelligent, very smart, very charming, um, and who has been able to justify to himself his actions to the point where he feels that he will be exonerated. He believes um, there's one section in the film um, that he uses the Bible to defend his actions. And it's, you know, it's one of those things um, I think it's it's very disorienting when you hear his words juxtaposed with the words of 
the patients of his that we interviewed um, and juxtaposed with the findings of the grand jury report and juxtaposed with images from inside his clinic. Um, there are a lot of exclusive images in our film, photos and videotape from inside the clinic. And it's very dis- it's it's disorienting hearing him him talk mm. and defend his actions. David Altrogi here on the intersection. Learn more at thirty eight oh one Lancaster dot com. Finally, on this edition of the intersection, shifting to a theatrical release, D.B. Sweeney, one of the actors in the movie The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, discussed the plot of the movie, his role, and some of the key messages contained within it. From that conversation, this is D.B. Sweeney. The Resurrection of Gavin Stone is about a, a fading child actor who now at the, the ripe age of 30 is, uh, he's, he's not really in the, in the mainstream anymore and he's a party boy. And after one particularly uh, obnoxious party, he's arrested and charged and is given 200 hours of community service before he can leave the state. And he's, he can choose between picking up trash on the highway or volunteering at the, or being a, you know, a helper at the, uh, the, the big Christian church in his, in his town. So he chooses that one because he figures it'll be easier. And as soon as he gets there, he sees a flyer that they're casting uh, uh, an Easter pageant, and he decides he's going to audition for the role of Jesus, thinking he can knock off his community service and maybe resuscitate his career at the same time. So Gavin Stone, played by Brett Dahm, he's a bit of a scammer and uh, a manipulator. And, And when the pastor, played by me, says, well, everybody in the cast has to be a Christian, he lies and says he is one. He doesn't really fool me, but I feel like, you know what, uh, he, maybe he'll learn something a little more about Jesus by uh, uh, being in the pageant than cleaning toilets. So I, I kind of agree to go along with it uh, but tacitly, and, uh, um, and that's the setup for the movie. And it's very funny and very heartwarming, and I'm, I'm really proud of the way it turned out. Something very interesting, and I wanted to go back to what you were saying earlier about the the pastor, your character. You basically tell Gavin Stone, well, you have to be a Christian to to be in this passion play you had your doubts but but you let him in anyway and of course there's there's this particular scene where gavin stone is actually googling what what you could call it christianese or or churchy type <laughs> language in the film but there's something to be said here there's a message and i think the film actually sends several messages but Talk about from from your perspective the importance of a church perhaps being welcoming in its approach to non-believers. Well, there's a scene between my character and his daughter, who uh, who is the the director of the play, and she is very skeptical, and she's a little bit more, a little less forgiving of the fact that he lies about being a Christian to be in the play. And my my answer to her is, well, isn't this why we do what we do? In other words, the outreach part of the church is, is you know, is, is fundamental to its mission. And so I sort of remind her that, yeah, okay, he's, he's an outsider, he's a non-believer, and what if we can invite him in and, and, and make him one of us? That would, that would be such a win for everybody. What other messages do you believe that the film sends to audiences? Well, I think that the relationship between Gavin Stone and his father, played by Neil Flynn, a terrific actor. He's on the middle. He used to be on Scrubs. And he's a really great actor and a great guy. And he he plays Gavin Stone's father. And they're estranged since the death of his wife and Gavin's mother. And, uh, you know, they haven't spoken. They're, they're just they're both sort of like frozen and, and, and uh, you know, paralyzed by their grief in their relationship. And I feel like um, they both take steps towards reconciliation, which are difficult, 
and painful. And I, I think that, that that's another message that the movie brings out, which is you only have one family. And if you are, you know, have your longstanding grudges or pain or, or whatever it is that's keeping you apart, take a step in that direction and, and see what can happen because you, you can't really lose any ground. And, and maybe you'll have some kind of a, a reconciliation or, or some kind of a, you know, a moment of grace with your family where you, where you can come back together. And I think that's a very important message as well. D.B. Sweeney here on The Intersection. You can learn more about the film by going to resurrectionofgavinstonemovie.com. Well, that just about concludes this edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Through that site, you can find the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to, download, or share full conversations featuring recent guests on The Intersection Podcast. You can subscribe to The Intersection through the site. Also, there are two blogs. One is The Three, Three Stories of Relevance to the Christian Community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. Plus, you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.